there's always more to learn but the the foundational lesson of what this work is is as far as i'm concerned it is the only thing we we need to learn as human animals it's how to become a conduit for universal intelligence hmm. and understand that the knowing we need isn't up here it's not programmed it's it's not what a domesticated society can teach you it's truly comes through feeling the way a mature wild animal experiences life Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I'm joined by author, mentor, tracker, and guide, Ren Hurst, to discuss her book, The Wisdom of Wildness, Healing the Trauma of Domestication. Along with the trauma of domestication, Ren discusses the importance of surrender, pain as information, healing the severance of self from soul, annihilating the concepts of right and wrong, reclaiming your power, and how there is no shame in the wilderness. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Ren Hurst is an author, mentor, tracker, and guide helping people address the trauma of domestication and navigate the wilderness of their inner lives and relationships. After 20 years of being a professional horsewoman, Ren reverse-engineered the dynamics of animal training to produce a body of work called Sanctuary 13 to help people restore connection to their most authentic, emotionally mature, wild, human-animal nature. Ren joins me today to discuss her book, The Wisdom of Wildness, Healing the Trauma of Domestication. Ren, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed your book, and I'm very much looking forward to speaking with you. One of the things that immediately came to mind when reading, and it's there in the title, is one of my, if not my favorite thinker, is Henry David Thoreau. And one of his quotes is, in wildness is the preservation of the world. And yeah. I think your book embodies that idea very thank much you. so. So there are a number of places to start, and I, I do want to talk about this trauma of domestication, but I think that probably the best way to start is with the spirit that started all of this, and that's Denali. And <laughs> so I was wondering if you could say a bit about Denali, introduce Denali to the audience. You know, she is still alive. Barely. Okay. <laughs> she's, she's either, she's between 14 and 15 year old, years old now. Oh, wow. And she still goes on her little walks every day around our property here. And, but she's definitely coming to a close and it's, it's just been such an incredible honor to witness her in this long journey we've had together and how much she has taught me about what it really means to remain connected to this the full spectrum of emotional self mm. and how informed we become through that if we're willing to step aside and let the entire experience flow through us rather than trying to control it or understand it from some conceptual place but you know when when she arrived in my life I had no idea how to relate to that and 
fortunately, my history with horses had set me up and prepared me to listen from a deeper place, even though everybody thought I was crazy and probably still does. I don't really care because here we are. And she's taught me, honestly, everything I think I'll ever need to know. Now, Denali, she's a husky, right? On, I haven't had her tested. I mean, she certainly presents as a husky, but she's okay. rather large, so she could have okay. more in her. <laughs> okay. All right. And how did Denali come into your life? I was a farrier at the time, and I was traveling around in the rural neighborhood trimming hooves for the day, and I saw her running towards the road in a pasture with a couple other dogs. And she's gorgeous. I mean, she's a solid white husky with blue eyes. So I like slammed on the brakes and stared at her and wanted to take her then. But I'm like, I don't, I don't steal people's dogs. <laughs> so <laughs> I left her and, but it was in my head. I was hooked. I was like, this is a long time ago. I mean, this is 2009 or 10, but I was like, man, I've got to get a dog like that. That's an awesome dog. And about a year passed and I was in that neighborhood working again and I was underneath a horse trimming hooves and all of a sudden this this dog starts like licking my face and I start laughing and I look up and it's her and uh, the client I was trimming for just started laughing and she's like man that one's wild you need to take her home and I was like really <laughs> like apparently she belonged to the next door neighbor and they were desperate to get rid of her because she was uncontrollable she was killing chickens she was running amok and I disregarded the person I lived with plea not to do that and took her home. Yeah. The, when I read that in the book, it almost felt like Denali chose you in a way. I mean, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just felt like that, that, you know, you first saw her and then she comes back into your life like a year later. It just yeah. seemed something very special. And she taught you a lot of lessons. And I liked how in the book you had a chapter on the relationship with Denali and what she was teaching you. And then you have a chapter that's more of a sort of a philosophical unpacking of the lessons yeah. that you learned. And I really appreciated that. And so I'm really happy to hear that Denali is still around. And I would imagine that you are still learning lessons. You know, the there's always more to learn but the the foundational lesson of what this work is is as far as i'm concerned it is the only thing we we need to learn as human animals it's how to become a conduit for universal intelligence hmm. and understand that the knowing we need isn't up here it's not programmed it's it's not what a domesticated society can teach you it's truly comes through feeling the way a mature wild animal experiences life. And so I'm always learning more and expanding, but in terms of like the thing to continue knowing, I mean, I, I think this is it. Mm -hmm. So let's dig in a little bit with some of the main concepts. And I thought we would start with this trauma of domestication, because you point out that it's not just how we are domesticating non-human animals, but how we have also allowed ourselves to become domesticated. So I was wondering if you could explain this trauma of domestication and why domestication is a trauma. Yeah, the way I define trauma first is a prolonged and unresolved interruption in emotional development. So this is something that happens early on. This is not an event 
though events cause interruptions, but lots of things cause interruption in emotional development that people are often unaware of. And as an animal trainer, a professional animal trainer, no less, that's what we're doing in order to domesticate someone. We're interrupting their emotional experience in order to control it, in order to control behavior. And very few people want to, you know, be accountable for that or admit that that's what's happening. But when I interrupt your emotional development, I'm severing your ability to have personal sovereignty and autonomy and authentic power. And the more that remains unresolved, the easier you are to control as an animal, human or otherwise. Most people don't ever come out of that because our entire society thrives on domestication, both through our own and through the perpetuation of it onto others. And most people are entirely unaware that they are domesticated, especially in the way that I'm defining it. So domestication is the intentional interruption of emotional development in order to control behavior. So any animal training and any you know parenting that we currently know it as the current paradigm is domesticating in, an, in order to make those in your care easier to control, usually to benefit from them in some way. And then our entire, you know, capitalist society is based upon that. If I can control your emotions, I can sell you my product. I can control your behavior. I can get you to act accordingly. There's nothing more dangerous to a domesticated society than a wild human animal that can think and feel for themselves and be guided by something bigger than the ego. And so that is how I am working with these words of trauma and domestication. Hmm. And it seems to me also that, you know, synonyms that we use for domestication is to tame. But the other one that I seem to recall hearing on more than a few instances is to break. Yeah. And it seems like that at the core of this domestication is a breaking of the human spirit the breaking of all animal spirit and it's the severance of the self from the soul so mm -hmm. that you have some guiding force of deep connection beyond morals beyond concepts of right and wrong i mean the thing is <laughs> you don't need to be told what's right and what's wrong when you're a deeply connected soul integrated being mm -hmm. and domestication severs that process and we come in and out of it throughout our lives moment to moment but it's not sustainable or consistently accessible because of the nature of trauma and we have to often externally resource to regulate our emotions long enough to have some glimpse of that connection, whereas this work restores it wholly so that you're not dependent upon external regulation or forms of unearned privilege or what have you. And so it's very complex. Very few people want to look at it honestly because it brings up shame. And there is no shame in the wilderness because shame is a story of not being good enough. And so one of the biggest hurdles and obstacles in, you know, teaching this work or guiding my clients is the line to be able to do this work effectively is accountability and accountability cannot include shame. Mm. Yeah. And so many of us, I think, and I know this is something that I suffer from as well as fairly deep feelings of shame, of sure. not feel, not being good enough and being disconnected. And I think that's one of the things that is so powerful in your work is this idea that 
this domestication is what separates us from everything. You know, it separates Mm -hmm. us from ourselves. It separates us from other humans. It separates us from the non-human animal world and nature in itself. And I think that we're seeing the results of this separation, the results of this trauma play out all around us, aren't we? Well, most people see the negative stuff, but very few people are willing to look at the perceived positive things that make us feel better for a time Mm -hmm. as part of the problem. And so I trust no path to love that doesn't involve an intimate relationship with pain and fear. Mm. And even in the horse training world, you know, we've, we've really shifted gears to a really toxic feminine way of working with horses. It's all about manipulation and submersive Mm. techniques, dancing and, you know, treats and whatever. And I find that to be much more insidiously destructive than the obvious, more overt forms of abuse that everybody can see and and say, yeah, that's wrong. Yeah. What would it look like? What would being undomesticated look like? It isn't easy to perceive visually. So it's a felt experience. And It doesn't look necessarily much different than anything else, but it feels much different. And, you know, love is a container for all things that can be, that cannot be defined by any lesser part of itself. So it's like within that container, there is agency and ability to experience the full range of everything and also come back to center and reconnection and knowing that from this place, I am just operating from a different motivation than when I'm disconnected. And so what it looks like isn't really the right question to be asking. (laughs) It's like, because it can look very similar. I mean, there are people that can capture a video or a photo working with animals and it looks very similar to what you might see me doing, but it's happening from a very different place and sometimes can be manipulated, but it it may look like the same connection or the same trust. Right. Yeah. And I think that the wording of the question, I wasn't necessarily thinking of visual representation, but more along the lines of I would imagine that a lot of people would say, but humans, you know, we are social animals. And because of that, we have to have a kind of level of domestication. I would disagree with that. <laughs> yes. And I know you would. And, 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 and I'm not saying that I disagree, but mm-hmm. when I ask the question, you know, well, what does it look like? I guess that's what I was saying is how, how can we as humans it, it seems like it's a total reimagining of it how we live in the world and how we relate to others and that's what i was trying to get at i think is because it's very difficult to from a place of domestication Sure. Yeah. That's the key. (laughs) Yeah. To understand what it's like to be undomesticated. Well, I can tell you that it is an arduous journey um, to be 
relatively undomesticated in a domesticated world. I, and my students will all agree with this. We, we kind of joke and call it post-domestication depression yeah. <laughs> in that you don't ever want to give up the restored connection you have access to. And at the same time, finding your place in the world is, is very difficult now because mm. it's like, no, a lot of things don't make sense anymore. You can understand them. You remember them. You understand why people do what they do and why you used to do what you do, but it no longer fulfills you anymore. And yet there is still this desire to have a place within our own species that is harder to find. And so what you end up coming back to again and again is living from this feeling space rather than this thinking space that causes mm. turmoil and suffering. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's necessary work. I think that we have to reimagine quite a bit of how we've been going on. And I think that's why it's so difficult, you know, is because it is difficult to imagine what it's like to not be domesticated and then have to go back into this domesticated world. You know, it's, and I think this is an old problem, you know, the philosopher in me is always thinking, you know, like, you know, Plato talks about, you know, going out into this realm of forms, but then you have to go back into the cave. Yeah. And it seems like there's a tension there of having to go back into the cave, having to go back into the world that doesn't appreciate wildness. Well, and you, you, with this work, the goal or the idea is to bring the cave with you mm. into every scenario and have access to it, even amongst the normal social interactions that you used to do. Like, mm. it's not hard for me to go be with people and do the things and whatever. I just always have to remember not to get lost in it and to really take plenty of opportunity to get out of the head and into the body mm. as my primary information rather than I mean that's the hardest part is not getting swept back up into the patterns and the habits of domesticated living it's not that it's difficult to be undomesticated in a domesticated society it's that it's difficult to stay in that cave yeah. <laughs> while you're out there and doing that and not get swept up with the you know the normalcy of everything else Right, right. Yeah. And I think that this idea of the embodiedness is really crucial because I see there's a couple thousand years, if not longer, history in humanity of denying in many ways our bodies. And, you know, we focus on the head stuff. And, you know, this is where I think your work's really important because you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, I think rationality is important, but it's the heart, you know, it's other feelings. And I've got a couple of things I want to say about this because, and you address them. I recently turned down a, 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 a publicity agent contacted me because they were interested to see if I would like to speak to an author of another book. And I don't remember the author's name and I don't remember necessarily the title of the book, but it was something about animals helping us achieve 5d consciousness. Yeah. And I'm always very suspect <laughs> of this idea of 5d consciousness 
Sure. Anyway, but when just looking at the description in the book, it was suggesting that animals are here to help us achieve something better. And this came to mind a lot when I was reading your book, because my initial response was, well, wait a minute. Number one, it seems like this focus on this 5D consciousness is removing us even more from our bodies. And then secondly, we shouldn't be using animals like that to our own benefit. Well, and it's like, I've never met anyone that speaks to 5D consciousness that isn't trying to run away from 3D pain. Right. I like that. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, is you can experience 5D consciousness by fully inhabiting the the physical reality that you are here to it's designed. I mean, we are animals by design. We don't need to exploit other animals to be the animals we were designed to be, but you do have to feel fear and pain because that's part of the physical experience and nobody wants to do that. Right, right, right. Yeah. We don't want to feel fear and pain. Those are scary things, you know, and I've got the quote here that kind of came to mind when, with what I just said, he wrote, there are plenty of people out there that would claim that captive dependent animals have agreed to some soul contract that excuses the exploitation of them. And all that, I call that spiritual bypassing. And more importantly, domesticated humans have no clue how to interpret soul essence agreements before they've undomesticated their own lives. Yeah. If I have to hear one more person tell me how, <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just bonkers to hear a domesticated animal talking about a wild soul mm. contract. Right. And, you know, if you, if you are looking for the subtlest form of no in the body, I can't not tell you how many animal communicators and bypassers of that particular nature that you just quoted can't even recognize the physical no being presented in a horse, mm-hmm. in a dog, mm-hmm. when they're sitting there saying that this animal has agreed to this contract. Right, right. And, you know, one of the questions I wanted to ask is, you know, it's about our pets. You know, I've got, I don't have dogs. I have cats and I know that my cats are prisoners. I understand that. And you criticize how we relate to our pets and in a sense, and I think that some people, this is something that may rub them a little rough is, yeah, but that's okay. I, I think we need to look at these things where you say or suggest that it's not quite love. You know, you wrote that the nature of pet ownership is symbolic of humanity's disconnect from a deeper understanding of love. Yeah. And how so? To desire to create the prisoner the desire to create the captive dependent for one's own personal regulation is a really dysfunctional understanding of that power dynamic and the responsibility that's involved in that. It's like as the captor or the guardian, if I care about them, if I love them, it's my responsibility to model emotional maturity so that they then can become emotionally mature themselves and then live sovereign lives. But that's not the nature of captive dependency or pet ownership. And I don't believe that having pets is indicative of a mature animal society. We have to, you know, 
take their autonomy away from them in order to keep them in captivity. And that is not coming from a deeply connected place because when you have that connection restored, there's no desire anymore. There's no motivation to create captive dependency in another. In fact, it becomes burdensome. And as somebody who used to need that and now has the burden of responsibility for 33 animals in sanctuary, I can't tell you enough how much I feel the difference in that shift. Whereas, you know, I love these animals. I take care of them in an unconditional way. And it's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's not, please correct me if I'm wrong. It's not about, I don't think letting animals just run around wild necessarily. Definitely not. It's about taking responsibility for our, you know, our responsibility towards what we have created, but not taking advantage of it for our own emotional, you know, regulation. Right. Right. Yeah. I I've often thought about this with my cats is that, you know, I think that most people, you know, they do think, oh, I love my pets and that the pets love them. But I've often wondered, you know, it's like, I think this just may be Stockholm syndrome on their part. For sure. Because I can promise you when the animal knows that they can leave and has a voice, the level of integrity that has to be maintained to keep that relationship there is is a lot higher than what people realize. Yeah. Um, once your animal is undomesticated and knows how to say no and use their voice freely, who you have to show up in a way that most people have never learned how to relate on love. And now that, you know, I've reached a level of of mastery, so to speak, in with this work with animals. And now that I'm practicing it in my more intimate human relationships, geez, I mean, the level of sensitivity that we have to show up to relate to one another in a truly loving space and not from our trauma is not what most people understand. Yeah. Yeah. I I would agree with that. I have an uncle who likes to say that we're all broken. And I think that's another way of saying we're all domesticated, all domesticated, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and we all have healing to do. Can you say a little bit more about this, different kind of relationship because it's always bothered me in a way to say that I own cats. I'm like, well, I don't really own them. I take care of them, Mm -hmm. but you talk instead about a guardian contract and you've already mentioned that there's responsibility involved, but I was curious if you could say a little bit more about this different version of living with non-human animals. I'm going to speak more broadly than that to this different version of the purpose of relationship. Okay. So, you know, most people, I would say, I would say all domesticated people are operating under a paradigm of codependency that's merely masquerading as love Mm. in that they're looking to get a perceived need met through Mm -hmm. the relationship and and that need being some form of emotional regulation, some sort of safety, some sort of comfort, some sort of security. When you have restored connection to your authentic wild self, that's not the motivation anymore. You now know yourself as deeply connected soul essence moving through this physical body. And now your motivation is to grow and expand. So then the relationship becomes about growth, expansion, and healing rather than how do I use you to get this and feel a certain way. And so it shifts from this wanting to create captive dependency for pleasure or entertainment, which is the definition of pet ownership, 
to, okay, these animals exist. We have to take responsibility for them within reason and within our limits. And I am way over my limit with that because I had so many when all of these shifts occurred. So I take this as an opportunity to care for these animals unconditionally to, and it creates an emotionally mature model in them that then I can visualize and observe and learn from how to integrate that emotional maturity in my own body. And that in and of itself is beneficial, but it's hard work and it's not Mm. like instant gratification the way grabbing the dog and cuddling them might be. So there's a lot of value to relating to animals in the way that I do now, but it is, it's extremely difficult work and it's not the instant payoff of getting to use them for pleasure or entertainment. Mm. So I'm curious in the program that you started Sanctuary 13, when I was reading it, it seemed to me to be advice for the individual. And when you were just speaking, and this may be obvious, so forgive me if I'm asking an obvious question, but when you're working with people, are you also working with them in a different model of training. I guess what I'm thinking about is I have a good friend that has dogs. And one of the first things that they do is they always, you know, get a trainer. And I'm curious if you're offering a different kind of training for people and their pets. It depends on how you're defining the word training. So I do educate people and teach them the guidelines of this work, but I can only meet somebody where they're willing to meet themselves because there's no, I'm not here to make people feel better. (laughs) That's not my job. (laughs) Not here to make people feel safe. Not here to be the safe space mommy and daddy didn't give you that you refuse to give to yourself. I teach people how to implement these principles to keep themselves radically honest. Mm -hmm. And that's it. That's, that's what the work is. It's not Sure, I can guide them and coach them into practical application if that's what they seek. But truthfully, if you practice the principles that I practice, the truth reveals itself pretty darn quickly and you don't need outside advice or opinions right. or help. Right. So while I'm readily available to offer support to people, I, I continuously tell them just do the thing and go yeah. within and find your own truth. Right. Yeah, it, it, it seems like what someone would need to do is with those along those lines is like what you did with Denali is let Denali lead you, let, let the dog lead you, let the cat lead you uh, Mm -hmm. because they will let you know what works for them. And it's difficult because, you know, there are all, so I, I came into this work and learning this from a different place than a lot of people. And I've had to learn that the hard way through teaching it for years. I had already been working on my inner critic. And so mm. I wasn't caught up with shame when I was mm. seeing what I was seeing and the animals reflecting my dysregulation or whatever. I have so many new clients that come in and it takes them years just to get over beating up on themselves so that they can see the reflection accurately. And I'm not really the person for that. (laughs) They they should either do that work on their own or find somebody else because I'm here just to help the people that are really ready to see the truth, which is hard to see if you have shame in the way. And so, you know, 
it is a very complex body of work that is deeply nuanced and I practice it every day and every day I go into deeper layers myself and it's 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 a paradigm shattering thing to be applying for sure it is and it's so different than I think what most of us are used to and it is hard work it is very difficult work to silence that inner critic and learn to love yourself and be kind to yourself and it, it it constantly boggles my mind that that's something I constantly have to remind myself of it's like you know it's okay to be nice to yourself mm-hmm. yeah you know? and, or just at least be neutral <laughs> just yeah. feel like, just, just allow like the essence of what real love is to come through you right. which is not positive it's more neutral yeah. than anything yeah with ability to move in all these different wonderful directions, but we can't deny the more difficult things in order to seek the things we enjoy. And so once we invite it all in, there's a whole vaster, just incredible perspective that adds a whole different way of being, a different way of seeing things. And it it can be lonely as long as you're thinking about it. But when you drop back into the feeling experience of relating, it, it it's nothing you would ever, ever turn away from because of just how connected and encompassing it really is. Yeah. Well, and we are so disconnected from so many things mm-hmm. and it, you know, it seems that this would be very difficult work. I mean, it's difficult work regardless of where you are, but it seems like it would be very difficult for people who are living in urban settings. It could be, but not really. I mean, it honestly, in, in my experience, it's half a dozen one way or the other. It, yeah. it, it really, ultimately, it's like, how willing are you to remove yourself from the distractions mm. and feel your feelings? Yeah. I mean, we joke all the time in my classes and things like that, but it's, it's like, just feel your fucking feelings and shut yeah. up. <laughs> no one ever died from feeling their emotions, but people die every day from stuffing them down. <laughs> right, right. That's true. And in regards to the emotion, something that you wrote, which I quite like is that you said, or you wrote, we do not actually have emotional needs. That's a concept based on a domesticated perspective. The only need we have concerning emotions is the need to feel them. So we can be informed by them from a place beyond conditioned thought. Yep. And anyone trying to convince you otherwise is trying to sell you something. Yeah. What's it like though? I'm curious. I mean, it's, it can be really brutal. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I mean, because I think a lot of people would say, but I have feelings. I feel all the feels. And it seems like there's something almost illusory about that. Yeah, because we we feel the things that we're familiar with and right. that we're comfortable with. Very few people will go into the cave with fear and pain. And in a way that's not like everybody feels a little bit of that right but to go into the cave with fear and pain and say okay i'm ready to listen what do you have to teach me about myself that's different than you know knowing that you're in pain and just tolerating it it's 
the invitation to ask pain to inform the same way you would invite joy or anything that more pleasurable that changes everything and instills this radical courage to live in a very, very different way. And, you know, there just aren't a lot of people out there that would rather do that than maintain their level of familiarity and comfort. Yeah, we like our comforts. <laughs> we very much like our comforts. Until and, you don't. I mean, once yeah. you have some of this, it's like, yes, I would love to have a more comfortable life just because it would make my my purpose here more easy to fulfill. It would definitely allow me to do so much more of what I feel like I'm here wanting to do. And at the same time, like I'm so secure in myself, no matter what environment I'm I'm in. And that is such an incredible place to live where mm -hmm. you don't need a lot, but you right. could thrive with more. Right. Right. Yeah. I like that quite a bit because I think that so many people operate from this space of seeking security. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And, you know, a lesson that I've learned is that what you just said is that security is something that comes from within. Yeah. And it's not going to be permanent in a physical reality. When you know right. yourself as soul, you're a little less concerned about trying to keep this physical reality like secure. Mm. The only safety I really have found in life is the ability to feel everything so that I can be present with anything. Right. And that man, that's, it's a very freeing place to live where you're not just walking around avoiding, you know, fear all the time. And I say that like, as if I've got it all figured out and no, I don't because, right. you know, I have it figured out in a lot of ways. And when I'm out in the world, I definitely seem like I have this level of emotional maturity based on this work, but then get me into a really intimate relationship where the deepest wounds get brought up. And I'm like, whoa, I still have some major work to do. <laughs> it's like, I have such a different ability to navigate that now. Yeah. And I'm actually just like going through that now in the first, I haven't had like, like a partnership or an intimate relationship in many years because I've been devoted to this work and having navigated that a little bit in the last few months, it's like, okay, those things are still there. That really sucks. And I got me and everything's okay. And it's not like you just don't get as destabilized by it the way when it feels like you're at the mercy of that. Yeah. Well, it sounds way healthier than how most people approach relationships. Well, it's, it's a different reason for relating. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And it, it, so much of what needs to be done is that sort of deep self-reflection and it's all these things that we find comfort in that often prevent us from doing that and that is what sanctuary 13 is it is a removal of the barriers of seeing the truth it is a removal of the comfort it's a removal of the distraction so that you can see clearly because we can convince ourselves all day long of anything as long as we feel emotionally regulated when we do it Right, right. Yeah, I'm still curious what it feels like to be somewhat undomesticated. I, I'm saying that that way rather than what it looks like. <laughs> it feels free. That's what yeah. it feels like. It feels yeah. like I have 
an enormous capacity for agency to decide how I'm going to relate to this moment. Mm. And I liked that it's also rooted in this notion of being present in the moment. Yeah. And, you know, everything that's out there that's valuable talks about presence, right? I mean, we know Mm. the value of being present. Why aren't we present? Why isn't it easy? Trauma, domestication. You remove the trauma and the domestication, presence is extremely accessible. You don't need to be sold presence techniques. You don't need to be paying for methodology. You just need to feel your feelings and remove the distractions to doing so and surrender to the unknown of the pain of soul integration that you didn't get to be taught through a model of emotionally mature parents because we've been domesticated for at least as long as we've been domesticating and we know we've been domesticating somebody in the wilderness for at least 14,000 years so you know this is much older than anything we understand yeah so it seems like the first place to begin would to be to just turn everything off and go and sit potentially yeah but if you can't keep your mind in check then that will do you no good Mm. because if your mind is not safe if that you are you know criticizing condemning yourself your nervous system will not relax enough Mm. for you to actually drop into the feeling space that we're alluding to here okay so how could you get to this may be a big question but how can you get to that safe place to even begin to go and just sit and be with yourself and be with the world and just be? I don't know if I can give an absolute answer, but for me, it was the annihilation of believing in right and wrong. Mm. Like right and wrong is a domesticated concept that doesn't exist in the wilderness. Everything in the wilderness, in the mature, raw wilderness is based on connection and feeling and understanding at that like symbiotic level of what is what is right and what is wrong in terms of the entirety of the system. You don't operate from a moral concept of right and wrong without being domesticated. So that's usually the biggest obstacle to get people over is guiding them to letting go of their attachment to one thing's right and one thing's wrong. It's all acceptable under the umbrella of love on some level. And if you can, if you cannot find a belief beyond right and wrong, I don't think you can be mature enough to do this work. Well, to quote Thoreau again, aim above morality. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the line. Accountability is, is cause and effect. It's like, yes, I engaged in this behavior. And that was the result of that. And this is what I'm going to do to move towards a solution, not I engaged in this behavior. And now I'm a piece of shit. And I can't stand myself. And I'm horrible. And oh, my God, like, you can't get past that your nervous system can't respond well to that. Like your nervous system is trying to support you in all these different ways and if you're the primary attacker of the thing that is supposed to be guiding you how will you ever be able to be in relationship to it in a way where the whole system is holistically working together right right my background is in talking about right and wrong is in 
environmental ethics. And yet I agree. I really try to discourage students talking about right and wrong Mm -hmm. because I don't think it's helpful at all. What I like, and you know, I imagine that there are some problems with this as well, but I come at everything from a virtue perspective, Mm -hmm. this idea of kind of like almost like excellence in a sense. And one of the thinkers that I liked, I think might help with a model on this. And it's a, she passed away several years ago, but it was a philosopher, Philippa Foote. And she has a book, a very short book called, I think it's Natural Virtues. And she places it not in right and wrong, but in terms of the species. Mm -hmm. What is it to be a good member of the species? And it seems to me that that's one way that we can avoid these ideas of right and wrong. You know, what does yeah. it mean to be a good human? Or I mean, it's a good rest- step in the right direction, but I still think it's so, you know, loaded with yeah. how, what does it mean to be a good thing? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what does it mean to be present? That's, right. that's goodness. Like, right. When you are present, you are a good model for your species, but Mm. presence is neutral and has nothing Mm. to do with good or bad. Right. And when we are fully inhabited in the body, there's literally no motivation to operate outside of the system or independently Mm. in a harmful way. But we have to trust that and that trust and that faith is a place of wild unknown that people are incredibly terrified of. Yeah. Do do you think that humanity will ever reach the point that we need to be at? I think if enough brave people would embody, you know, disconnection, we would have a tipping point. And because Mm. we're not disconnected from each other, I don't think very many people have to do the thing, but I think very few people are willing to do the thing. You have to be willing to die. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I recently heard in terms of someone was speaking about surrender, which you mentioned and this Mm -hmm. idea of surrendering and surrendering is not removing the fear necessarily of, you know, because you still may die. You know, I think they use the example of someone, you know, in a war who surrenders, Um, you know, they, they surrender the anxiety they surrender a lot of the, to some extent, some of the uncertainties, but it's more of a, I guess, kind of a letting go. And people don't understand the practical reality of that experience. It's often extremely physically painful Mm -hmm. and it will remain physically painful as long as there's resistance. So this, the gap in our emotional developments it's a painful physical process to close that gap. That healing process of closing the trauma is physically painful, but it moves as quickly as you surrender to it. Mm. So to in the areas that I myself were closed to those gaps, it felt like dying. It felt like I was going to die. And I was willing to, because at some point you're like, okay, none of this makes sense and it's not worth it anymore. So I fold, just fill me with information. And that information was physically painful at first. And we are so deeply taught to move away from pain. Right. Instead of into it. Now I see pain as information, not in a masochistic way, but as in a, okay, it's here. Let's see what it has to say. Hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. It makes me wonder how much we've lost by not trusting the pain or so listening much. to the pain. So much. Yeah. Every day, every day. I mean, I, un I uncover new layers of this in my own experience every day, yeah. especially in my most intimate relationships where, you know, abandonment wounds come up and the deepest things are still there that just don't get triggered in day-to-day -day life and it's like wow how much am I doing to avoid the pain of this right now and I'm like okay no turn towards the pain yeah yeah one of the things that I really appreciate in speaking with you that's coming across very very clearly and I think it's in the book as well is you've learned a lot and you're sharing that wisdom, but you are also very clearly not speaking from a place of having all the answers. God, no. And, I, and we never will because we're right. an ever expanding consciousness. And so mm -hmm. Oh, there's plenty of people that really don't like me. And it's the ones looking for a guru or a mommy right. or a daddy. Yeah. And I am not, no, I can get so hard edged and prickly with people who don't want to <laughs> be responsible for their own feelings. And I do it laughing in the back of my mind. I have this like coyote energy that comes in and it's like, oh, this person just wants a codependent teacher. Nope, that yeah. isn't going to happen here. I mean, Sanctuary 13 costs $3 a month for anybody that wants to show up for class. Wow. And I do that because I think this is important and I'm practicing it every day, just like my students. And I'm going into deeper levels with it every day. And I have come from enormous trauma. Like there's it makes no sense in the normal world how I get to be the person I am now based on what I've come from. And this work is a testament to that. And right. I'm just going to keep practicing because this is where I find my center and my peace and my connection. And it's hard. And it's also, you know, so worth it to be able to know yourself beyond your story, beyond your trauma, know yourself as not your trauma, know yourself as, you know, the soul coming through whatever this is. Yeah. And isn't that one of the principles, if I remember correctly, of Sanctuary 13? And I'm not sure it's correct to call it a principle, but to drop our stories. Yeah, it is the it's the 12th principle. Yeah. Yeah. And it just you means could... drop your awareness out of your mind and mm. into the body just long yeah. enough to get some clarity and some truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we, we tend to do that. And I think that is something that keeps us stuck in our heads. And I know this is something I've done is this constant narration of a story. Yeah. And often that story is, in my experience, the repetition of a wound. And the more we're willing to feel like the more we're willing to fully inhabit the body, the more resolution we have to whatever stagnant energy is creating that narrative, that ongoing story. So that the more willing you are to stay and feel all of the pain that you're scared of feeling, whatever it may be, all of that swirling stagnant energy dissipates. And then you don't carry this like unconscious narrative all the time. And then you get to choose, you know, and mm -hmm. use story in a very deliberate, intentional way, which can be a beautiful way. Like I want to move into writing fiction so that I can infuse some of this wisdom in a less confrontational manner and enjoy myself doing it instead of pissing everybody off. <laughs> and so it's like, to me, that seems like a really fun way to engage with story yeah. on purpose. 
Yeah. Well, I, I didn't find your book confrontational at all. Well, you um, didn't, but plenty yeah. of people <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to see it as confrontational. I guess that it's, I don't know what word I would use. Well, the people that are ready for it are ready for it. But there are a lot yeah. of people that just by me even expressing some of these things, oh, they get really mad. Oh, I'm sure that there would be people, especially pet owners, who yeah, would be like, sure. no, I love my pets. <laughs> what are you talking about? And they love me. And <laughs> that could be a really difficult thing for people to grapple with, I think. Yeah, because of the shame. People yeah. like it's it, you, it's hard to consider something beyond what you believe if you're going to turn against yourself the second that your truth is rattled. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is something that I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I've already asked about people doing this in a sort of an urban or city setting. And you said, no, it, it's possible. I it's think totally there's this, the same, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that there's this, when you hear about wildness, right? Mm -hmm. People have this sense of what well, has to be outside of the city, you right. know, that you have to go out in, you know, but that's not what you're saying. The wildness is something that is constantly within us. And that's what we have to recognize. Is that correct? Yeah. Wildness is uninhibited emotional experience. That's okay. what wildness is. And there's very few wild places and wild animals left in the world right, that are right. being interrupted or traumatized by humans. Yeah. So it's it, there is no point in going out other than to remove distractions but even out can be a distraction when i'm out here staring at these mountains and these rivers that makes me feel better mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's just as distracting at times as having the comfort of a warm home yeah yeah now when uh, it would seem that it's also not just i mean yes being present and being self-reflective but also recognizing the interconnection. I, I think that that is another crucial aspect. And is that interconnection, is that the experience of love? Because you yes. begin at the beginning that you say love is what this story is about. Yeah. And that interconnection is not something we need to believe in. It's something we have to experience through the presence of love, love and presence, yeah. interchangeable love and wild love and God, all interchangeable, yeah. very misconstrued concepts that we've utilized in a very domesticated way. Right. But, you know, love is so much more relatable to peace than mm. positivity and we, and so few people like embrace it as such. Right. I like that because I, I, I see quite a bit of a sort of toxic positivity for sure, uh, rampant in the world. And I think that toxic positivity is a replacement for actual love. And, you know, I, and I, it got me thinking because it's something I've thought about quite a bit. The, the the concept of love you know i always want to know well what exactly is it because it's a word that we use and we throw around all the time and it's like but how many of us actually know what it means very few animals 
animals yeah. know what it means. Yeah. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, the Greeks had a couple of different ways of or different kinds of love. You know, they had the philos, sort of like that brotherly, sure. you know, yeah. neighborly love and erotic love and agape, you know, that sort of unconditional love. And when I was reading your book, one of the terms that came to mind was wild love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think so many of the lesser forms of loves are really versions of affection to love is to like radically accept what is mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. understand that acceptance through, you know, emotionally mature boundaries and, you know, I think of love towards a dependent, be, it be that child or animal in our care, more as boundary attention than yeah. affection and nurturance. Yeah. And very few people got the boundary attention they needed because very few right. parents can offer it. Right. What was, I have it, I'm going to look it up here, but you wrote something that you got from a friend in terms of boundaries. Yeah. A friend uh, that no longer speaks to me. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, One of those. <laughs> yeah. But it was the, the boundaries, the space I need to stay present with you. Yeah. And the more emotionally mature we become, the smaller that space needs yeah. to be. Yeah. And I, I think the, the other thing that comes to mind is that I think that we mistake possession for love. Oh, that all the time all the time. I mean, look at, I mean, just the nature of the way we deal with romantic relationships. Right. If there is a third book coming in this line, it's going to be about undomesticating romantic love. And, mm. you know, that's, that is kind of the field I'm playing in with this work today. And it's like, every day I realize I can be your friend for life, but your lover day by day. And, you know, these ideas of committing to be in a particular kind of relationship in a future that doesn't exist is not love at all. Like there's mm. no way I can say I am going to be with you in this way tomorrow or next week or next month. If my soul says no to that, and that's mm. a denial of my truth in order to maintain security within this domesticated framework of relationship. And holy shit, is that a scary way of relating to people? And it brings up yeah. everything. And I really yeah. believe that that is the direction we need to move as a species but these concepts like monogamy and everything are are domesticated constructs of that rather than try to be that that should be the result of something that is attuned and aligned and true that we don't need to name or label or limit in any way yeah and it seems that so much of these our relationships are predicated on kind of not wanting to hurt someone else, but yeah, yet, right. But yet at, it seems that frequently we allow ourselves to be hurt in order not to hurt others. Yeah. Yeah. That's been my experience often. <laughs> and, and <laughs> like, you know, this is, it's hard because, you know, I love partnership. I love to mm. be in intimate relationships and being in the integrity of this work while navigating that is very strange because it's not a lot of people are wanting that kind of relationship. Yeah. 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 It, it, you know, the work you're doing is just exploding so many things that we're used to and that we yeah, take for, for sure. granted, you know? So, you know, I can understand why some people may be 
hesitant. <laughs> I'll say well, luckily, it's an invitation, not a demand. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> for sure. And honestly, I am, you know, I, my, this book and this body of work is my, my, it's probably my biggest life's offering in terms yeah. of an external offering. Now that the book exists and it's out there, my job is to embody this work and right. follow my own soul. And for me, that's going to be writing fiction probably and yeah. doing something radically different and embracing things that have always been too scary to do. And uh, I don't want to be anybody's teacher. I want right. to, I want to listen and yeah. and be love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's the, the right approach. You know, I don't trust anyone that's a guru or um, anything like that. And even, you know, I'm a professor, but I always try to tell the students, it's like, well, yeah, I, I have a lot of information, but totally. I'm, co I'm constantly learning. And, you know, so I, I try to, and sometimes at the community college level, this is difficult for them to grasp onto, but yeah. I'm like, you know, this is a, like a shared inquiry. Let's look at Absolutely. this as we're, you know, looking at all these things, we're exploring these things together. Well, and I, I should have been more precise with my language. I love teaching, mm -hmm. but I don't want anyone yeah. to give their power away to me. Right, right. Exactly. And, uh, because like what I teach is about how to reclaim your own power, not listen to yeah. me. I mean, right. I love like, you know, we, I created a nonprofit to make Sanctuary 13 available because it, I don't think love should cost no money. Right. Yeah. So it's, you know, we have Wild Wisdom Incorporated operating as the primary vehicle for making this work available. And I just operate a Patreon platform for that. And people pay $3 a month to jump on a live call and hear me very, very <laughs> rawly and unfiltered show up on Sunday mornings and share where I'm at with each, of, with each of these principles and answer questions. And I'm a total shit show some days and some days <laughs> I'm really dysregulated and you get to see the full gambit so that no one is ever under any impression that I think I know everything because I don't. Yeah. But I know this work works and it makes me want to be here and be alive, which is yeah. a far cry from where I was at other times in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that is one of the things that we all seek and I still this, uh, sorry to keep dropping names on you, um, right. but <laughs> something I still from the mythologist, Joseph Campbell, yeah. where he said once that it's not meaning that we're all looking for. What we're really looking for is the experience of being alive, the experience yeah. of being present to our own lives. And I think that's what you're offering. I think that's the, the territory that you're trying to guide us through. Yeah. And what it fundamentally boils down to is embrace pain and un yeah. like truly embrace it. Don't just tolerate it, welcome it in and yeah. see how quickly it alchemizes into something else when you do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I know that we're starting to run out of time here. I'm going to ask you about the wild wisdom website again here in a moment. And you've probably answered this question but what do you have coming up? What are you working on next? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I launched a really basic website, rendermewild.com. Okay. And I've redirected the Wild Wisdom website to that website because I don't have a lot of practical help yet. And everything for the past six years has been about getting this book finished and out in the world. And now that's come and it's here. And now I keep reading that last chapter 
to remind mm. myself what what am I doing next? So mm. it's a it's threefold. I'll always be available to support people who want to learn more about this, but that can't be my number one priority anymore. I want to write. I, there's a series of novels I want to write that have this wisdom infused in them, but it's a very different voice I'll be using, a very different audience that will probably resonate with it. And I'm going to be guiding wilderness immersions beginning in October. And that's kind of all I've been thinking about right now. And so I still live off the grid in this teeny tiny little shack. I've got 33 animals to secure and take care of somehow or another. And I'm just trying to figure out those pieces out so I can figure out how I can be available to do whatever it is I'm called to do next. Yeah. Well, I think it's incredibly important and valuable work. Thank you. Um, and I really enjoyed the book. And I think that there are so many valuable insights and so much wisdom in there. Thank um, you. And it, you know, I always try with, you know, my little prisoner felines to observe and pay attention and acknowledge their catness. And to try not to force too much, although sometimes we do get into battle wills. But I think that's important. And I I, I mentioned that because the one question I wanted to ask that kind of just popped into my mind is how do we start de-domesticating the animals that we already have? Sanctuary 13. Put it into practical application. What you will be able to achieve in terms of subtlety and relationship through the practice of these principles. Oh, I just got chills even thinking about it again. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, yes, my life is difficult because I have 33. Okay. Yeah. I would never have this many animals on this side of this work. That sucks. <laughs> and <laughs> so, but when you've just got a few that you can really pour yourself into this work, oh, the quality of relationship and the quality of connection that is accessible through this is just the most delicious experience I've ever had. And I mean, you can get a taste of that in my first book, Riding on the Power of Others, how I like the what behind this was my relationship to horses. You get a taste of it a little bit with the dogs in this book, but oh, I miss being able to devote so much time just to relating to the animals because the practical application of these principles, it's painful to look at it first, and then you have access to this pure, unadulterated soul in this little animal body that has no judgment and no ego and gives you such a pure, instant feedback system if you can get shame out of the way. And the depth of communication that is available through that energetic exchange is just, it's just glorious. I mean, it's, it just mm. is everything. Mm. Yeah, I like that. So on uh, Sanctuary 13, if people wanted to get more information about that, would they go to the rendermewild.com website or do you have another? They can. Uh, That's okay. my personal website and everything is just going to redirect them there right now because there's not very much information because I don't know what I'm doing next. <laughs> but I do show up and I teach class on Sanctuary 13 every week through Wild Wisdom Incorporated and that's patreon.com slash wildwisdominc. Okay. And I don't know what is next. I'm so unprepared. I, I mean, I have such a full plate out here just with animal care and living the way that we do in this off-grid environment that it's, it's hard to know what's next. We'll see what the book does and see what becomes available. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that that's a good way to be. 
to not know what's coming next. For sure. Yeah. Everything's possible from that place. (laughs) Yeah. It's pure potential, right? But we would love to get a a permanent sanctuary set up that we can create, you know, a real immersive program that I can come and go from and not my life, not just be about how to keep feeding these guys. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I know some people that would be deeply interested in your work and I'm going to see that I share it with them. Thank you for um, that. Because I think that it's it's very valuable. And I am so grateful for the time that you spent speaking with me this morning. And again, I'm grateful for the wisdom that you offer. Well, likewise, it was a lovely conversation. It was nice to connect with you, Nick. Okay, you too, Rand. So I look forward to your nonfiction books. Yeah, you might. <laughs> you might want to know more about that first. <laughs> well, no, I think it'd be good. I, you know, and that's, you know, one of the other things is that I think that when you, because you devote really one chapter to looking at these principles of sanctuary 13. Yeah. And there could have been so much more. And I think you sure. even mentioned that, that you could even have even written like a book on each one of them. Oh, for sure. And it's an ongoing exploration for me. I mean, that's kind of how the the classes are set up. Every Sunday, I teach one of the principles based on where I'm at with that principle today. Yeah. So it never stops. And that's, that's what makes it kind of fun. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, the fiction books are going to dive into some much darker topics. I've got a pen name for that. We're talking like, you know, it's going to be fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Very good. Well, I'll look forward to them. So, all right. Well, Ren, again, thank you so much. I really appreciated this conversation. Thank you, Nick. And that's a wrap on episode 71 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you would like to support my work here on Rebel Spirit Radio, please consider becoming a patron. There are currently four levels of membership, Seeker, Sage, Adept, and Guru. Some of the perks available include early access to videos, shout outs to members, a members only Facebook page, access to the Rebel Spirit Radio Discord server, a monthly book club, and the opportunity to join me and special guests for a monthly cocktail apocalypse, happy hour at the end of the world. You can find the link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. Another way that you can help the podcast is to share it with friends, family, or even coworkers that you think will enjoy it. That really is one of the best ways you can help and support the podcast. As I said a few times now, uh, I often kid that I'm here in Southern California doing missionary work in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics and consciousness, and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, please, by all means, help share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help, especially if you listen on Apple. If you have a moment to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you'll be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.